Dear Lord God, we thank you and praise you for your holy word, your written word. And we ask that now as we study your written word, and and in particular the Psalms, and in particular Psalm 30, we ask, Lord, that you would send forth um, your word, that um, just as the prophet Isaiah says, that you would accomplish your purposes in our midst through this study during this time, and that your word made flesh, Jesus Christ, would be made manifest to us. And it's in his name that we ask this. Amen. So if you've been tracking with this class, um, if you haven't, that's fine. I still have, <laughs> I still got more. I got like three more that I'm going to go on. <laughs> so if you've missed, that's fine. And there are there are a lot of, there are a lot. There's a lot to be said about the relationship between King David and the Psalms. And when you look at all of the Psalms, all 150 of the Psalms, there are actually 14 Psalms that say that have within their title a specific. Um, reference to an episode or a general time period in King David's life. So that's what I've been doing over the course of these eight classes, is looking at those psalms in particular. I had to only pick eight of them. I actually picked seven, and the last one we're going to look at um, the Messiah and at how the prophecies about the Messiah and the expectation for Jesus was built into the psalms themselves because of the everlasting covenant that the Lord made with King David. But what we see is that David is called a musician. We know that while he's a little shepherd boy out in the fields, he's playing his, um, we think it's a lyre. uh, We don't ever see him or hear of him playing a flute or anything like that. But so he's gifted musically. He's even brought in to soothe King Saul's um, troubled spirit by playing music. So we know he's a musician. And in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 1, um, towards the end of David's life, this is what the, um, the, the author of that historical chronicle says. He says that David is that sweet psalmist of Israel. So we see there are so many psalms that say they are of David, whether that means they were actually written by David himself or if they were written in David's style. We're reasonably certain that he did write many of them, but he might not have written all of them. But what we'll see is that um, there are, that um, he also, in not just in writing psalms and in playing music, but he also codified the use of music in the worship of Yahweh in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple it was transferred. And um, we know about the codification of the um, of the ritual surrounding sacrifice and all of that. We see that in the Pentateuch, that that was given to Moses by Yahweh. But then under David's reign as king, his uh, major effort, we see he, he put major effort, and it talks about it in Chronicles, in bringing out, identifying who would sing, what they would sing, when they would sing, what songs would be sung at different times and feasts of the year, or in different kinds of sacrificial circumstances. And so David is setting the precedent for how music is going to be used in worshiping God. And we see that even today because we use the Psalms in our worship. Do you notice that? That we have a psalm sung or um, read every time. We usually read them, but in many churches they're sung every time we gather to worship or almost every time. And if we don't do it, 
it's because we're we're under the wire time-wise. I'm sad to I'm sad to say, but it's built into the Anglican liturgical tradition that you we worship with psalms, and so the psalms are not just um, so we think of them, we see them written down, but they're actually songs. I mean that might go without saying for some, but these are songs. And one of the great things about the psalms in general is that I, I don't know about you, but I often find or I've heard that that phrase that if you um, sing a prayer, then you pray it twice. And what we see throughout the Psalms is that these are these songs are prayers, are cries. And one of the things that we're going to see in this particular Psalm that we're looking at for today is that the cry is so close to the experience, the human experience, that the cry of the psalmist, and there are corporate Psalms and then there are also individual Psalms, but the cry of the psalmist is um, something that we will find meeting us in the midst of our own human experience at any given point. And so it is, um, no ac- it is no accident that Psalm 30 happened to be the psalm that I had chosen months ago to um, talk about today because it's within God's own economy as we, um, as a congregation, grieve. And so it'll be very interesting for us to look at Psalm 30 today. Um, when we look, if you were to turn over your sheet, you'll see the title of the psalm, and this is what I'm moving on to next on your handout. The title of the psalm, it's, this is sort of the um, heading, and it provides, usually these provide instructions on how to sing it, who's going to sing it, when you sing it. Um, a psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. And now, the, this is a confusing thought because, well, was, well there, was there a temple? Did David build the temple? No, we know that Solomon built the temple and that David wanted to build the temple, but the Lord wouldn't let him. The Lord said, you would like to build for me a house? Well, guess what? I'm going to build a house for you instead. And um, as it turns out, Solomon, David's son, built the temple in all its glory. Even though David wanted to, he was prevented from doing so. And yet David took the Ark of the Covenant and he brought it into the city of David. He brought it into the place where he himself was dwelling. And um, and started to centralize and um, build up the worship of God in Jerusalem. That that became the place where you would go to worship the Lord under David's reign. And so it's thought that this, um, first of all, the, the, the phrase, the temple, or the, the word the temple, it actually is the house. So we're not sure if this means the dedication of any house, the dedication of David's house, which he's definitely seen to be building in 2 Samuel, Samuel chapter 5, or um, if it's taken from, um, from later on in time that the psalm was there and later on in time they went back and they looked at the psalm and they said, well, this is for the dedication of the house and they meant the house of God wherever the Ark of the Covenant was. So we know that David brought the Ark of the Covenant into the city of David, into his own um, dwelling place in the city he had built, the stronghold he had built, but that it was, um, that it was, um, and so it's very likely that he penned this possible that he penned this upon that occasion but what we do know is that it was used throughout history later on when the temple was dedicated or rededicated so we see in um, we see in first Kings chapter 8 that it was um, that the temple itself was dedicated under Solomon but then later on it was rededicated when Ezra and the exiles came back to Jerusalem after being in being in exile in Babylon they rebuilt the temple remember and they rededicated it to the Lord 
Lord. And in that rededication, it's very likely that they used this psalm. Um, then also there was another rededication after the temple was desecrated in the time between the prophets and the coming of Christ. So in the time between Malachi, which we heard about today, and Jesus is coming. Um, the temple was desecrated, and it's very likely they might have used this psalm again in, um, in, in that service of worship of rededicating the temple. Um, so we're not sure exactly who, who wrote it when they wrote it, but I really do believe it you know, started in David's reign. He probably wrote it, and then from there on, we see it used liturgically in this um, corporate worship setting. So when we look at, and one of the reasons why I think um, it's used and associated with David's bringing the Ark of the Covenant into um, Zion is because in 2 Samuel 6, when David does this, he is, do you remember this story? He is dancing and worshiping the Lord with all his heart and all his might, and he is so overjoyed that the Ark is being brought into um, the central location and into his own dwell into his own the place where he dwells and the capital of um of the two kingdoms that as he's bringing bringing the ark of the covenant in he goes nuts and he just starts dancing with joy and that's when michal his wife i don't know if you remember this but she looks at him and she kind of she thinks he's been very undignified in the way that he has worshipped because um, he, you know, he threw off his outer garment. It was undignified for a king to dance around like that in front of the servant girls. And she even says, the servants of the servant girls. And, um, and he rebukes her and he says, I'll become even more undignified than this in the worship of the Lord. That there's just this, um, nothing is going to hold him back in that joy of the Lord and in worshiping the Lord. And so you'll see this when we read this psalm right now, you'll see what I mean because there is a mention of dancing. And so it might be that this psalm maybe later on got associated with this event of David dancing wildly and joyfully before the Lord. So what we're going to do, if you turn your page, any questions before we read the psalm after all that little bit? Or comments, since we have an expert? Yes, sir. I don't know where the word psalm came from. I don't know, actually. I, I mean, it is a Hebrew word. We might have, you might ask Dr. Gentlet afterwards if you'd like to know. The list of psalms is a P-S-L-T-R the Psalter, yeah, yeah, the Psalter. Well, it is a Hebrew word that—that's why you see the P.S. together. It's not one that we would have coined on our own. Um, but I, I think it's just song in Hebrew. But I don't know for sure. Um, so it goes back to the actual word for use for these songs um, in the Hebrew language. Is that—is that what you're asking? Yeah. 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 So it comes. It's a foreign word. We've appropriated that word in English, but it's a foreign word to us. There's an old story I heard when I was a boy about a very enthusiastic but not very well educated preacher who made a great sermon about how wonderful the pizzle tree is. P-S-L-T-R-E-E. Yes. Well, that that that's that, that sounds that sounds pretty. That sounds funny. I know that I don't know exactly what the word means, but it is Hebrew. It, we, it, it, we didn't come up with it. We don't have that linguistically in the English, the P and the S together. But um, any other questions before we read the psalm? So what we're going to do, if you turn your sheet over, we're going to, instead of reading it by half verse, 
We've done this a little bit in this class. We're going to read responsively. I'm going to start with the odd verses. I'm going to start with one, and then you all read the even verses, and we'll go back and forth until we finish the psalm. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from shale. You have restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you the saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. That my glory may sing your praises and not be silent. O oh, Lord my God, I will give thanks to you for So did you see the dancing in there um, in verse 11? There is, when we look at what kind of psalm, I don't know if you knew, but there are many different kinds and types of psalms, and the genre of the type of psalm helps us understand what is it saying and why is it saying what it's saying. And there is a sense in which so many of the psalms talk about trouble, and not just trouble, but trouble with capital T. And the psalmist finds himself in the midst of great trouble. And there's a type of psalm that finds the psalmist on if trouble is here, and I tried to mark it on your, if I had a whiteboard, I'd make a big drawing for you. It, trouble is here. A lament is where the psalmist finds himself on this side of trouble. Nothing has been resolved. There, there is no end in sight, but there's this cry, and the psalm itself is the content of the cry to God. Help, what is going on? Can you believe it? All my foes surround me. Will you deliver me? Get me out of this. What are you doing? All of these things are con you know, part of the content of a lament. And then what we find is that a thanksgiving psalm, and this is a thanksgiving psalm or a testimony psalm, is where the psalmist finds himself on the other side of trouble. Trouble was here. He was over there, and he'll talk about it. I was over there, but the Lord brought me over here. The Lord delivered me out of all my trouble. I was there, and there will be some discussion of what there was like, but look at me now, I'm here because the Lord delivered me and the Lord brought me out here. And that testimony of what God has done is meant to bring not just that individual testimony, because it's very clear, it's an individual person who's talking about, um, sometimes it's corporate, but in many of them, and in this one, it's an individual person talking about what it was like and how God drew them out. And then because of what God has done, Done, that is the basis for the corporate praise that is due to God. And so that testimony of the individual person is meant to cause the whole congregation to come in and to worship Yahweh for what he's done. Um, because they know that even those who are still in the midst of trouble, who are on this side of trouble, will be delivered and brought out because of the character of the Lord. 
And so um, when we look at this psalm and when you read it, I'm sure each one of us have um, experienced some kind of trouble with a capital T. And even sometimes trouble with a lowercase t when you're in the middle of it feels like trouble with a capital T. And, um, and that is one of the great things about the Psalms is that trouble even with a lowercase t in, in our experience of it can feel like a capital letter T. And that is okay. Um, that, you know, we can't always manage our emotions. And that's one of the beautiful things about the Psalms is that the psalmist goes in the rawness of his emotions, no matter how great or how small the trouble that he finds himself in, he goes to the Lord in prayer and he cries out. And his cries to the Lord are uncensored. And we're going to look at the uncensored cry to the Lord in this psalm. And I, so I want to go sort of from the sublime, from scripture to the ridiculous, and just mention this, um, because this is very much trouble with a lowercase t. There's this great children's book and as many of you know I was a preschool teacher while I was church planting in Massachusetts and that was kind of the culmination of a lot of time spent with little bitty children over the years um, and I never thought that I would be doing that but it helped to pay the bills even while I was um, church planting so it was a great thing and it, and it didn't I'm the kind of person that 25 three and four year olds did not exhaust me or get me um, de- demoralized for ministry so I was in I know I, it takes it takes some I don't know what it takes but <laughs> I would go and spend you know all day with these children and I'd come home kind of energized I know that sounds weird I must be an extrovert but um, so there was, in this time as a preschool teacher, I got to revisit this children's story that had been so meaningful to me as a young child, and partly because I am very sensitive, and I was a very sensitive child. I was a child bursting into tears over no apparent, for no apparent reason, and you know the parents would be like, oh, what is it now? <laughs> um, and there's a great way as a parent to, you have to recognize, okay, this child's really upset over something that I would not be upset over. They're very sensitive, and yet you can't dismiss their emotions. The way to help them get through them is to allow them to express them and walk through them so that as they grow up, they're going to become less sensitive, you hope. Um, but the, 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 their experience is still important. It's important to recognize what they're going through and allow them some means that are safe of expressing it. And so for me, one of those means, well, I had two means. First of all, I had a lot of, um, I wasn't allowed to swear as a child, of course, thank goodness. I would have had my mouth washed out with soap if I'd actually cussed um, because that's the way my parents were. But I did have a whole stream of made-up swear words as a child. (laughs) that had all those um, good consonants in them. I would make up words with all the consonants. And as I, as I, you know, one frustration one year would add to the frustrations of the past years, and I'd have another consonant word added to it. And so if you really want to hear my string of expletives, uh, maybe I should just go for it now. It was, um, oh no, tonk, jeet, and bongus, kinkling. I know it sounds like, but can you imagine a three-year-old's? Use it in this sentence. Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, no, it's more. It's more expletive. It's more onomatopoeia. It's more. This is what just happened. I think with jeet, that's definitely a z sound. But I think my parents must have wondered if I was getting a little too close there. But I, what was so great about it was getting to use those words that were safe words to be able to get out my frustration and just get it out there and work through it. So that that was one thing. But then there, I know I'm weird. <laughs> Um, 
also had bright red pigtails down to my waist while I was saying all this. And then the other thing was that one of these, there are some stor children's stories that really help children work through different emotions. And one of these stories was called, that was our favorite of the four of us children, was called Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. And for any child that is having a bad day, this is a sure way to let them express what they're feeling and move them along to a different place because they start to laugh at themselves while they're laughing at the main character who has had this terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day because it allows the child to see how what they're going through might not be nearly as um, horrible as they think it is. Their trouble is trouble with a lowercase t instead of a capital T. And so Alexander goes through his day. He wakes up and he says, I went to sleep with gum in my mouth and now there's gum in my hair. And when I got out of bed this morning, I tripped on the skateboard and by mistake, I dropped my sweater in the sink while the water was running and I could tell it was going to be a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And the book just goes on and on like that. And his only solution is to move to Australia. He says, I, <laughs> I'm going to move to Australia. Um, but I love this because um, in the midst of the trouble and whatever trouble you might find yourself in, you might look at the trouble that we've seen this week as a congregation and you might say, well, what's my problem? My personal trouble is trouble with a lowercase t compared to this trouble with a capital T. And yet our own experience in the midst of the trouble that comes our way is, is real and it needs to be expressed because as we express it, um, we're able to move through it. God gives us the grace through that expression as we turn to him with it to move through it. And that's exactly what happens with this psalm. You see that the psalmist cries out to the Lord from the midst of the trouble. And we don't know what the psalmist's trouble was, but it sounds a little bit like it was some kind of illness that was going to lead to death. But even if he's being overdramatic, um, it is still in that process of praying to the Lord, turning to the Lord, um, and expressing what's going on, that the Lord then, as he turns to the Lord and maintains that connection of communication, that the Lord transforms, the Lord hears, the Lord brings him out of his trouble. And he bears witness later on. Um, so we find, um, looking at this psalm, when you look at it, the first few verses talk about um, this individual testimony that brings corporate praise and thanksgiving. It starts out with an I. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. And there's this sense in which the, um, and this summarizes, this, these first three verses just summarize what happens. Um, on this side of trouble, the psalmist is praising the Lord because of what he did for him when he was on the other side of trouble. And so he says, he's recalling it, he's recollecting, he's retelling what happened. Oh Lord my God, I was in trouble, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. And then he describes what that healing was like, that the Lord raised him up, even from the dead. Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. Sheol is um, the place where the dead go in the Hebrew mindset. They understand Sheol to be, um, in some places it's considered hell, but it's really the place where those who have died go to in, from this life. You restored me to life, and it's synonymous with the pit. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. 
it. So there's that sense of direction. The psalmist was falling and no one, what was going to happen, there was no help coming to his aid and the Lord scooped him up and drew him up out of the pit, drew him up out from Sheol. And so after that summary in verse 4 and 5, then the psalmist says that this, um, essentially God's saving activity on behalf of one person is good news for all. And so 4 and 5 talk about, they're almost like a hymn. And the two qualities of a hymn is that there is, first of all, an invitation to praise. And then second of all, the reason why. When you look at our hymns, we, we are invited to praise God and then um, we find out why. Why should we praise the Lord? Well, we should praise the Lord because of his character. God's saving activity, his salvation, comes out from his character of steadfast love. And we see this in verse 5. And there's this temporal nature. I'm going to look at this in a moment. But that um, God's anger, and see that for is the reasoning why. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. I'm going to look at that in a little bit, but do you see that there is within God's own steadfast love, within his own character, that sense in which um, the evil um, that we experience, the things that happen to us um, that God at times allows to happen are momentary momentary compared with the eternal scope of God's favor in his salvation and his salvation comes out of his steadfast love which will bring joy um, and I think of that phrase within our liturgy his property is always to have mercy God's character is to always have mercy um, weeping may tarry for the night but joy comes in the morning in, and that sense of momentary versus a lifetime. Anger for a moment, but favor for a lifetime. And so this testimony, this individual testimony of the psalmist has been opened up. He has invited the whole congregation to sing praise to the Lord um, because of what the Lord has done to him. And because what the Lord has done to him is so sure and steadfast, it's a part of God's own character. They can be sure, the rest of the congregation can be sure that when they are in the midst of trouble and they cry out to the Lord, the Lord will rescue them and save them. Um, and um, so looking on, um, when you look at the whole psalm, you see verses 1 through 5 are, in a sense, one retelling of what happened. And then he starts over again in verse 6. And he goes back in time in verse 6. Uh, so it's a little confusing. He goes back in time to before trouble hit. And he was in prosperity. There, He was strong. Um, I sh he said, I shall never be moved. And the Lord's favor was with him. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. But then there comes that moment, that moment of trouble. You hid your face. I was dismayed. And it is out of, again, here he is now again in the trouble. He's retelling what happened a second time. And out of trouble in verse 8, he calls out and he cries out, To you, O Lord, I cry. So looking at that, um, what we see here that um, calamity occurs even to the faithful. Our well-being and our security in this life is a fragile thing. And we see that this week. Destruction can come in a moment. 
um, and we don't know what to do in that moment. We don't foresee sometimes the things that will happen to us, and there is great trouble, like the great trouble of this week, um, but there are also small troubles as well, and, um, and we experience them day to day, week to week, uh, month to month, and year to year. And is the trouble that we experience directly a result of our own personal sin? And there is the sense in which sometimes it is. Obviously, in this case, the great trouble with a capital T um, is not that we've experienced this week and that the Cole family has experienced this week. That is not. There is a sense in which, for example, an addiction to um, a substance that's going to destroy your body will have consequences that result in personal suffering. And so we can't just say that sin um, doesn't directly result in suffering because sometimes it does. But then there is also random evil and random suffering, um, like the death of a child in the night, that we don't understand, we don't know about, we don't know how to explain, except to say, where were you, Lord? Did you hide your face? Is your favor gone from us? And the answer in Jesus is no. His favor is not gone from us, all appearances to the contrary. He was not um, powerless on Sunday night. God is still powerful. But we do live in this fallen world. Um, Sin entered the world with Adam and Eve. And from that moment, suffering and death have also entered the world, not just in regular patterns, but in random patterns. Random patterns like the typhoon that hit the Philippines. There is a a sense of some kind of randomness to the evil that we experience in this world. And yet, the Lord is still sovereign, even in moments like this. And so calamity occurs even to the faithful. Calamity occurs um, even in the midst of right action. When we say, I really didn't do anything wrong. Why is this happening to me? Why do bad things happen to good people? And yet, um, outside of the Lord, there is no mourning at the end of the night. And by mourning, I mean M-O-R-N-I-N-G. And that's one of the things that this psalm says to us, is that for us in this world, there is suffering. There is um, evil that we each experience, whether, again, it's evil with a capital E or evil with a lowercase e. And our response to it is very likely the same. When it's happening to us, it's all evil. It doesn't matter how big or how small. And so in the midst of that trouble, where is the Lord? And I turn to Isaiah 54, 7 through 8. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. And that is a verse that is not necessarily related, again, to the events of this week, but that looks more at um, the, the desertion of the Lord that we feel when we are very much in the midst of our sin. There's a sense in which when we have done bad, when we have, in fact, been guilty, um, we find that we are far from God and that sin that we commit separates us from the Lord. And yet his favor and his mercy outlast his judgment. His favor is eternal 
um, through Jesus Christ. Um, and so we'll look at that again in a moment, but there is that sense in, of that temporal nature, the briefness of the moment of his judgment, and yet the full judgment fell on Jesus Christ, even when we feel the suffering in moments like this week. Where can we go except to pray? And one of the beautiful things about David is that in the midst of his trouble, with a capital T, he cries out to the Lord, and he cries out in a way that is very interesting for us. He cries out, and he he doesn't bargain, but he gets very economical with the Lord. He's very raw and unfiltered. He doesn't feel like he has to play nice with God, with his emotions. He just says what's on his mind, and it's almost like he's arguing with a lawyer. Or like he's, um, he's very down to earth in his cry to the Lord. He says, what will you do if I die? What do you benefit from having me die? What is this trouble going to bring about in my life? I am here only to praise you. So if I die, what will happen? You won't be praised. Come on. Come and fix it. I almost see him giving a little jolt to God, giving a little jab in a parry and thrust, almost like Jacob wrestling with the angel. He, in the midst of trouble, is not walking away from God. He's not stopping his conversation with the Lord. He's not ceasing his connection, but rather he is pressing in. He is parrying and thrusting with God Almighty and saying, what are you doing? Are you kidding me? And there's a, God is able to handle our emotions like that. And we see that with the psalmist. God is able to handle our disappointment, our discouragement, even our anger and our, our, our confusion at what's going on in the world. He can handle that. He knows it's going on in our hearts. And even for us to get it out is so good. Um, because after that anger comes the cry of weakness. Very often anger, um, they say anger is a secondary emotion. The anger is um, masking either hurt or fear. Hurt at something that's been done in the past or fear that something will happen in the future that's bad. Anger is a secondary emotion and God can handle it. And we get it out in healthy ways so that then when we become weak, um, when we get it out, we are able to be weak with God in a hurt and in our fear. And that's where verse 10 comes in. Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. We have no help but in him. We have no hope except in and through him. So um, prayer can be uncensored. In fact, it needs to be. Um, and as he gets to this low point of recognizing his need, his desperation, it's from there that he re um, receives this assurance of God's goodness, his mercy, and his power, that God is able to deliver us. And um, this deliverance then leads on into praise in verses 11 through 12. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You've loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness, that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Whatever the trouble is that we find ourselves in, whether it is recurrent cancer despite treatment and prayer, an addiction that persists despite sobriety, depression that won't go away, 
a miscarried hope, an unexpected death, an unreconciled relationship, the repetition of behavioral patterns, I'm just like my dad, oh darn it, infertility, whatever it is, whatever trouble we find ourselves in, even the little T trouble when we look at other people's trouble is still big T because in our experience of it, we find ourselves needy, helpless, even angry with God, crying out. And in the midst of that crying out, we can know it is not supposed to be like this. God did not want it to be like this. And he came to rescue us so that it won't be like this eternally. And there's that sense in which you see in Eden, this was not his plan. Sin was not his plan. He knew it would happen. He's got a plan to solve it. But the ideal would have been to rest there in perfect bliss, sinless, without suffering, without evil, eternally. And yet he has a made a way back home for us so that the sin and the evil, the suffering and death that we experience during this time is temporary. And that is one of those beautiful things that we see in this psalm. The suffering is, temp is momentary, even when it feels like an eternity. That the suffering within this age can be characterized as a night, one night, one simple night in God's eternity. And the day will dawn, as Hardeen said, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, quoting from Malachi, that um, weeping lasts the night, but joy comes in the morning. Mourning is turned to dancing. And there is even this sense that when Jesus returns, the mourning that we've experienced in this life, it's so, so bodily, the description in the Psalms. They're so um, enfleshed, um, in matter matters in the Psalms, and you really see that, that the, the mourning and the grieving, the sorrow and the suffering that we've experienced in this lifetime, it's like um, sackcloth. It's like the funeral garb that I wore this week. Those clothes that um, we wear, the mourning that we wear, the grief, the sadness that we feel and we experience, God is going to take that off of us um, and he will clothe us. The image is clothing us with gladness. And there's such a sense of helplessness in that. Helplessness in the midst of the emotions. And yet one day, and we see streaks of the dawn across the sky, one day those clothes will will be changed once and for all and we will be clothed in garments of gladness. And so the, there is such a beautiful sense in which death is not the final say in this psalm. Death is there just for a moment. Sheol and the pit has no hold over those who are claimed by Jesus Christ. And life comes for those who look to God in hope and even with the cries of our hearts. Um, that last verse, verse 12, after their sense of deliverance, there's this praise, I will give thanks to you forever. David says what he doesn't even know. He just has this glimpse of eternity, and yet it's true that through Jesus Christ, who is um, the most tangible manifestation of God's steadfast love to us. He walked the way of suffering and even to the point where in the middle of the day at his death the sky turned to night. 
that night came even in the midst of the day and he spent three days in the pit. And so Psalm 30 is actually his psalm as well. He went through the pit in order to bring us out and a new day dawned on the third day so that at the last day we too will be raised from the dead and every tear will be wiped away in that heavenly city. So we can look to St. Paul's words. He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us and you and all those we've lost in Christ into his presence. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, or it might be a heavy affliction, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, in the midst of our dark nights, whatever trouble we find ourselves in individually and as a congregation, Lord, give us a glimpse of that day that will dawn, the day that has in fact begun to dawn through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us see those fingers of light along the horizon. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come. We ask this in your name. Amen.